Hello and welcome back to another episode of the More Than Books podcast. I'm your host, Sierra Whitfield, and today I'm joined by... Joel Hartung. Uh, I'm happy to be back again. Thanks for having me. If you're familiar with the podcast, he's been a quite a recurring guest probably since the beginning. I was one of the main hosts at the beginning and uh, still pop on occasionally from time to time now. Well, thank you for joining us today. Today we are going to be discussing Band Books Week, which this year is running from... Our Band Books Week celebration is running from September 18th through 24th. So Band Books Week is an annual event celebrating the freedom to read. Typically held during the last week of September, it spotlights current and historical attempts to censor books in libraries and schools. It brings together the entire book community, from librarians to publishers to teachers, professors, and even booksellers, in a shared support of the freedom to seek and express ideas, even those that some consider unorthodox or run counter to popular social belief. The theme of this year's event is Books Unite Us, Censorship Divides Us. How is the Bellevue University Library going to incorporate this theme in our own celebration of Banned Books Week? Well, we usually use the theme as kind of a starting off point when designing displays. So we will, we sometimes use the ALA um, provided graphics with the theme on it. And sometimes we take their kind of slogan and have our internal marketing department kind of make something that we might like better if, if or something that may reflect the library a little bit more. So this year we're kind of doing uh, doing Band Books Week a little smaller than we have in the past. The event is being put on internally in the library by our student engagement committee this year. Um, I'm not 100% sure how they're going to be putting the Books Unite Us, Censorship Divides Us theme into the displays, but I know in the past we've always used, uh, used the theme as kind of an overall um, guide for when we're designing the displays. And what events will the library be hosting? So this year, um, we're going to be doing a story walk in the library um, that has different stations that focus on three different um, regularly banned authors, as well as a more general banned books display in our main display case. The three banned books authors that we're focusing on are Toni Morrison, Kurt Vonnegut, and John Steinbeck this year. Each story walk station they're going to have a display with books, some information about why the books were banned or challenged, and they'll also have a chance to enter a drawing to win a book from one of the banned books authors. So there's three different winners, one for each of the, the stations on the story walk. Um, so that's the main event um, this, this year for Banned Books Week. Uh, I, on Tuesday, September 20th, there will also be a book tasting event at 2 p.m. in the library, uh, and this highlights a selection of banned books with featured themed snacks that will coincide with each book. So that's that'll be a fun little event that we're putting on. But the displays and the story walk and the book tasting are mostly what we're doing this year for Banned Books Week to highlight, uh, highlight the theme and highlight the event. It is no surprise that it is parents amongst all other groups that tend to challenge materials more often than any other group. Often these challenges are motivated by a desire to protect children from engaging with inappropriate content, or even, in some cases, offensive language. So there are three top reasons that are cited uh, by the Office of Intellectual Freedom as to why certain materials are challenged more than others. And these include, one, the material was considered to be sexually explicit, two, the material contained offensive language, and three, the material was unsuited to any age group. It is often said that books are challenged with the best of intentions, 
Do you happen to agree with the statement? And if not, why might that not be the case? I think on the surface, it sounds nice or it sounds like a good explanation. And I do think in a lot of cases, it is often the intention. People are trying to protect their kids from content that they think is too adult or too obscene um, and or that the children can't handle it. It's usually, as you mentioned, parents trying to protect their children um, or other people's children. I do think that's kind of a misguided sentiment, honestly, um, because I think that children don't really need to be protected from difficult ideas and information. I think that that's part of growing up is learning about some of these topics and realizing that, and there might be a a particular age group that where something is more suited for, like, I'm not going to give a toddler, uh, you know, they probably can't get into a Toni Morrison novel, but maybe someone in high school or middle school might connect very well to it, um, to the theme or to the hardships that the characters go through. And often parents are trying to protect their kids from anything hard or difficult. And that's not possible, especially in the modern world, because people are on the internet all the time and there's no one protecting anyone from what's posted there on a day-to-day basis. Saying that, uh, that that sentiment that books are usually challenged with the best of intentions, I do also think there's a darker undertone going on, especially right now, where a lot of materials are being challenged not with good intentions. They're really trying to make no one talk about these topics. I know that there's laws recently in Florida and Texas um, and lots of libraries are being challenged, school school libraries, um, like the, the Don't Say Gay bill in Florida, where they're having younger kids they don't want exposed to anything related to LGBT, the LGBTQ community. And honestly, that's, that is a darker undertone. I don't think that those items are being challenged with best intentions to protect the kids. I think they're trying to force their own beliefs about something on everyone else and trying to make it a hot topic where schools or libraries are even too scared to purchase these materials. It's it's outright censorship. And right now it's LGBTQ materials. Um, a couple months ago it was critical race theory materials or anything that depicted difficult race relations or, you know, that America isn't all a happy-go-lucky place where we're all living in harmony and have absolute freedom. It's censoring anything that isn't their black and white view of the world. And I think that's a lot darker than that initial um, that initial sentiment of these materials being challenged with the best of intentions. Banned Books Week was launched originally in 1982 in response to a sudden surge in the number of challenges to books in schools, bookstores, and libraries. This includes the Island Trees School District v. Pico Supreme Court case, which ruled that school officials can't ban books in libraries simply because of their content. A number of organizations came together to start Ban Books Week, both to highlight the fact that literature was being banned and to celebrate the freedom to read. In the Supreme Court case Island Trees School District v. Pico, which happened in 1982, the court held that the First Amendment limits the power of public school officials to remove books from school libraries because of their content. In the fall of 1975, a New York school board received a complaint from a community group, Parents of New York United. The complaint asserted that school policies on library books were too permissive. Specifically, the parent group complained about nine books which included Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five and Langston Hughes' Best Short Stories by Negro Writers. 
The group said the books were anti-American, anti-Christian, anti-Semitic, and just plain filthy. In response, the school district removed the books in February of 1976. Senior Stephen Pico joined with four other students to challenge the school board's decision to remove the books. Pico claimed that the books were removed because passages in the books offended the group's social, political, and moral tastes, and not because the books, taken as a whole, were lacking in educational value. A dozen library and free speech organizations filed briefs on the students' behalf. The case then went on to the Supreme Court. The court ruled in the students' favor on First Amendment grounds, holding that the right to read is implied by the First Amendment. The government, in this case, a public school, cannot restrict speech because it does not agree with the content of that speech. The decisions called libraries places for voluntary inquiry and concluded that the school board's absolute discretion over the classroom did not extend to the library for that reason. In his dissenting opinion, Justice Berger said, If the school can set curriculum, select teachers, and determine what books to purchase for the school library, it can surely decide which books to discontinue or remove from the school library. Do you agree? No, I don't agree with that. <laughs> but I'm a librarian, so I feel like in this case, it, the Supreme Court justice is saying the school can decide but really in this case even the school wasn't the one challenging these books initially it was an outside community group trying to put their um, philosophy onto the school or onto the librarians so in especially in this case i think that the supreme court justice um justice berger not berger although i keep wanting to say berger um is, you know, kind of moving the goalposts a little bit. Uh, I do think that um, collection development um, should be decided by the librarian in charge at the library um, with input from faculty and staff, um, teachers. So teachers should work with the, um, the librarian at the school and find materials that may help the curriculum. But in the case of literature and all sorts of other materials, like it's good to have a lot of options available because especially in a school library you don't know what the student is going to want to read and they're just making these materials available if it's not specifically part of the curriculum and it's just in the library i don't see any issue with that if it's something that's in the curriculum that's really should be on the teachers and if something might be controversial you know maybe have a parent permission slip or something like that in order to read that material or have alternative readings available. There are other options than removing the items entirely from the collection, and I think that's just a rabbit hole that leads to full-on censorship. For the last portion of this discussion about Banned Books Week, I thought it would be fun to talk about some quote-unquote problematic books that we happen to like. What book or books have you chosen? Uh, for this, I chose a classic that's already been mentioned uh, more than once uh, during this podcast so far, and that would be Kurt Vonnegut's Slaughterhouse-Five, which came out in 1969 and ha has been challenged almost constantly ever since. <laughs> I found an article in The Atlantic that um, kind of describes the never-ending campaign to ban Slaughterhouse-Five, so I'll be, I'll be kind of using that as a guidepost for, you know, some of why it was challenged um, and what the author's response at the time was. Um, but 
to kind of give a little background on the book, if you haven't read it, uh, Slaughterhouse Five is kind of hard to hard to categorize. Um, it's a war story. It's about Billy Pilgrim, who's an American soldier um, who was captured by Germans in World War II, and as a POW, he was held captive in a slaughterhouse and survived the firebombing of Dresden. Um, so the slaughterhouse was in Dresden, and he was there through it all. It's also a sci-fi novel, and it has time travel elements, it has aliens, it has dark humor and other satirical elements, but mostly it's a semi-autobiographical novel, um, an anti-war novel, about Vonnegut's own trauma and PTSD from serving in World War II and surviving the firebombing of Dresden. Um, so the main character, Billy Pilgrim, kind of represents uh, Vonnegut in the novel. And I think that the more outlandish elements or the more uh, satirical and science fiction elements thrown in there were Vonnegut's way of dealing with his own PTSD um, without having to explicitly get into, you know, a very difficult subject for him. So he he used some of these elements to kind of give himself a little distance from the subject matter. So um, I mentioned that this book has been repeatedly banned and challenged over the course of uh, its lifetime. Um, you mentioned an incident, um, and I think there was, yeah, the, in Oakland County, Michigan in 1972, it was banned from um, a school when the, the judge that kind of presided over it um, called it depraved, immoral, psychotic, vulgar, and anti-Christian. In 1973 in North Dakota, um, they burned 32 copies of the book. <laughs> The Island Tree School District, uh, you mentioned that one, which became the uh, 1982 Board of Education versus PICO trial. Uh, so that's when the Supreme Court ruled against the board's restrictions, um, citing First Amendment rights. But in 2000 and let's see, I believe it was in 2011, yeah, that uh, it was challenged in Missouri. An associate professor at Missouri State University named Wesley Scroggins um, wrote a letter to the Springfield News Leader about the book saying, this is a book that contains so much profane language it would make a sailor blush with shame, he wrote of Slaughterhouse-Five. The F word is plastered on almost every other page. The content ranges from naked men and women in cages together so that others can watch them have, having sex to God telling people that they'd better not mess with his loser bum of a son named Jesus Christ. So he had words to say about Vonnegut's uh, seminal novel. <laughs> so the response to it was that the Kurt Vonnegut Library um, and Museum sent out, was shipping out free copies of the book to anybody in rural Missouri in the area that wanted it. Um, so they ended up shipping 75 copies of the book to students at the school um, who requested it. And the Kurt Vonnegut Museum and Library has been actively involved in Banned Books Week ever since then, so for the last 11 years. That's kind of, uh, the author himself obviously couldn't respond at that point, uh, but the, his library and museum definitely took up the cause for him. So I picked His Dark Materials by Philip Pullman. If you're not familiar with the series, it is a trilogy, and the three books include The Golden Compass, or as it's called, essentially everywhere else in the world, The Northern Lights, uh, The Subtle Knife, and The Amber Spyglass. Now, this trilogy is very hard to summarize, but I will do my best. The trilogy centers around two children, Lyra and Will, who are born apart in a vast multiverse. And once they come together, they unintentionally stumble into an age-old fight against a domineering godlike figure called the Authority and his host of angels. 
The narrative moves between worlds, beginning in Lyra's world, a world reminiscent of her own, where people have animal spirits, or animal companions, known as demons, to our world, and thereafter onto several other parallel worlds. This trilogy has been attacked for its blatant criticism of religion. In Lyra's world, the dominant religion has several parallels with Christianity, and I would go on to narrow this down to Catholicism specifically. The main conflict in the first novel, The Golden Compass slash The Northern Lights, deals with the church, or as it's called, the magisterium, which in our world is actually a name given to the authority of the Catholic Church. The church is very domineering and exerts a lot of influence in all modicums of life, commerce, education, and in popular thought. It actively seeks to repress people's connection to intellectual freedom and free will. Part that gets a lot of people upset is the fact that His Dark Materials is a retelling and inversion of John Milton's Paradise Lost. It is retold as a Felix Culpa, or as a story of the fortunate fall. Pullman actively commends humanity for what Milton saw as its most tragic failing, that of the fall of man, or the fall into original sin. A quote from, I guess, one of my favorite articles, and I'll uh, link to it in the episode description, says, In his dark materials, the exile from paradise is seen as a necessary loss of innocence and gain of experience which thereby allows for Pullman to reframe the fall into a positively charged coming-of-age narrative for young readers. While I agree with the overall sentiment of that quote, I would hesitate to use the word young readers. When Pullman originally sat down to write the trilogy, he did not really have a specific age group or audience in mind. Now, what has the response to this book been like? In the words of William A. Donahue, his Dark Materials has been thoroughly described as atheism for kids. So, His Dark Materials is, has a lot of controversy amongst Christian groups. The effects of the controversy can be felt most keenly with the protests surrounding the 2007 film adaptation. When it was announced that Lionsgate was going to be adapting the first book in Pullman's trilogy, several Christian groups arose to the occasion and had their knives out from the get-go. It was due to their constant protesting that the film ultimately tanked, which wouldn't allow the materials to be adapted for another 10 to 15 years. Strangely though, he has found some support from Christians who argue that his books focus on the constraints and dangers of dogmatism and the use of religion to oppress, not on Christianity itself. In a November 2002 interview, Philip Pullman, who was asked to respond to the Catholic Herald calling his books the stuff of nightmares and worthy of the bonfire, he replied, My response to that was to ask the publishers to print it in the next book, which they did. I think it's comical. It's just laughable. Overall, he doesn't care. He actually finds it surprising that his books haven't gotten as much controversy as he originally expected. In comparison to other major fantasy series, his works kind of remain a little bit under the radar. Regardless of this, he is still a very proud and a rather loud atheist. Though in recent interviews, he would turn his religious affiliation more towards agnostic. I'm not entirely sure if that's the truth, 
Recently, there was another BBC adaptation of the series, and I think his PR team might have pushed him to tone down the overt atheism so that the series would appeal to a wider audience, but that's only my personal speculation. Who knows? Well, that's the end of this part of the podcast. I'm Sierra Whitfield, and I'm Joel Hartung. Thank you for having me today. Hello, and welcome to the second part of the More Than Books podcast, episode 50. Today, I am joined by Jessica Omer, Senior Circulation Assistant, and Allison Schaefer, Resource Sharing slash Circulation Specialist, as we look back on this year's BruinCon event. BruinCon, if you may or may not know, was an event that the library hosted that focused on comics, literature, media, and fandoms. It also had a number of events, which included several panel presentations, a cosplay contest, as well as several vendors for you to choose from. As BruinCon's organizers, can you give the listener an overview about this year's convention? Sure. Um, It went pretty well this year. We ended up having about six outside vendors, including The Game Shop, Kuro Draws, Old Town Wood, Tuft Muse, Weston Thompson, and Fandom Focus Creations. Uh, We also had a number of library and university booths, including a booth showcasing the university's integrated technology lab a library button-making station, and many photo opportunities, including a green screen photo booth, a life-size Iron Throne from Game of Thrones, the TARDIS from Doctor Who. Uh, we, Like you said, we also offered cosplay contests and about four panels. Uh, those focused on drawing for comic books, gaming, Gundam models, and cosplay. BruinCon was originally supposed to first happen in you know 2021, Unfortunately, because of the thing that shall not be named, it was rebranded as NanoCon and was pushed to an online platform. Now that you have the perspective of putting together an in-person and also a mostly online event, what was the main difference between the two? And were there any particular challenges that you ran into this year that you didn't last year? I think the biggest difference for me was having to rely on so many outside resources When it was NanoCon, it was basically the library staff, what we could offer, doing our own thing, that kind of stuff. Um, In this case, we were working with outside vendors and panelists, and it's basically a lot of trust that they're going to show up and do their thing and that kind of stuff. Yeah, we did have one that didn't actually show at all. So Um, challenge-wise, I think our biggest issues were we ended up inadvertently picking the day to have our event as the same day as the first Nebraska Husker game and high school football games. And then we had torrential rain showers that were not helpful. And <laughs> but, leaking. Yeah. yeah. So basically it was stuff that was beyond our control. Uh, if I could control the weather, I would. That would be awesome. Not. <laughs> yeah. Good luck here, especially. Mm-hmm. Now, what were some things that you were proud of? And moving forward, what are some things that you'd like to change? I think the first thing that I'm most proud of is how the library staff worked so well as a team and was able to bring it together and everybody was so willing to help and make sure that it was awesome. Um, Changing-wise, I think next year we could do it again and just go bigger and better. That would be fun. Yes, more vendors, more panels, more people. Mm -hmm. And what are some things like events like and panels that you would like to include in the coming years, not just next year? Maybe a maid cafe at some point? Possibly. We were thinking about adding some food aspect if we could figure out how to get it to work. Um, like she, like Allison said, more vendors, more topics, uh, just making it a little bigger so it'd be bigger, more towards a bigger convention, that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, we didn't have a bad turnout for the first year, and it being a pretty small thing that we didn't uh, have a ton of advertisement for. But uh, it would be nice to have more more cosplays, more uh, merchandise to choose from, that sort of thing. Now, speaking of cosplay, cosplay events are a common feature of various fan conventions in this day and age. There are also dedicated conventions, local and international competitions, as well as social networks, websites, and other forms of media that center on cosplay-related activities. Essentially, there's this whole subculture that sort of sprung up around the practice. But it wasn't always this way. Cosplay has always existed in one form or another. We have record in 1908 of a couple in Cincinnati named Mr. and Mrs. Fell who attended a masquerade ball and dressed as a pair of characters from a popular newspaper strip at the time. We also had people who attended the first two years of the World Science Fiction Convention, which is now called Worldcon, who dressed up in alien theme or science fiction theme costumes. And you also had the practice starting in the mid-1970s and onward of people dressing up in popular shadow casts of well-known cult classic films like uh, Rocky Horror Picture show and Little Shop of Horrors. And all of these examples are from the West, mind you. So it's been around for a while, and it wasn't always necessarily labeled as cosplay. So where did the term cosplay come from, and where did this practice originate? Um, I'm not sure about it originating. Um, it seems likely that it did come from the West. Uh, the term itself comes from the combination of the words costume and play. It's thought that a man named Nobuyuki Takahashi of Studio Hard came up with the term specifically after attending the 1984 World Science Fiction Convention in L.A. He apparently came up with it because the closest he could come in Japanese had uh, meant something more along the lines of formal costume or something like that. And that wasn't quite what he was viewing, so he had to come up with something himself. I think the original, like, when it really started taking off in like what it is conceived as today was probably in about 1939 in Japan. How did it evolve into the subculture that we recognize today? Describe the emergence of cosplay as it's currently linked to fan conventions. Cosplay, like you said, started becoming popular around the 1930s. And like I said, it was originally known as costuming. And it originally meant dressing up in the big costume balls, the big Victorian costumes with masks and everything. Masquerades. Yes. And in the beginning, you mostly did, like, the generic science fiction characters, so, like, aliens, that kind of stuff. Uh, but in about 1975, that changed with the creation of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, where the live showings, everybody is encouraged to dress up, you're encouraged to become the characters. Yeah, it was during this time, the mid-70s, that conventions also started to become more popular, and fandoms such as Star Trek and Star Wars made costuming an important part of being a diehard fan. And in the 80s, it started becoming even more popular thanks to science fiction conventions and the growing popularity in Japan, where in 84, it, costume play became known as cosplay. In the 90s, it was reinvented as a performance art centered on comics, television shows, games, and movies, where you no longer just dressed up as a character, you would become the character. Why do people cosplay? For both of you, on a personal level, why is it important to you? I think there's a number of reasons people do cosplay. There's, to some small extent, there's a money aspect because you can become a professional cosplayer. Usually it's either someone who resembles the character a lot or it's someone who is just really, really, really amazing at creating the props and the costumes and stuff. So don't bank on this as a profession. money. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not a, a guaranteed profession. Mm -hmm. Um there's the normal fan enthusiast. I'm like, if you love a, co a character, 
you can either go as biz, big and expensive as you want, or you can go as small as you want. It's just showing that you love this character. For me, it helps build confidence because you kind of no longer feel like yourself. You're this character, so who cares? It, it does take nerve to go out dressed not quite as the no- norm. Mm-hmm. Or in a bodysuit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sometimes a lot less, wearing a lot less than the norm. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's fun to create the stuff. It's fun to build something new to see what you could come up with, what you're capable of. And most of all, it's the fun. Yes, it is very fun to do. When did you create your first cosplay? What character and fandom did you pick? I created my first official one, I'd say, in 2014, when one of my friends and I were going to WizardCon in Chicago. We ended up talking and we decided to do a captain's theme for all of our costumes, so I ended up doing Malcolm Reynolds from Firefly. I think mine was around that time, too. I forget what what year we actually decided on. Uh, we are doing costumes for Halloween here at work, and I wanted an excuse to do a Link costume from The Legend of Zelda, because I love playing those video games. And then I had a costume I could wear to the next convention. If some of our listeners are considering creating their very first cosplay, what tips do you have for them? How can they make it the best cosplay that it can be? First thing I would suggest is just find a character or a show or a genre uh, that you just love. It doesn't matter what it is, as long as you love it. Because if you love that character, then you are going to put everything you have into it. And it'll make it just a lot more fun and less awkward for you. (laughs) It's important to think about what you can do. Uh, You don't have to go into debt for this hobby. You can, like I said, you can go as big or as small as you like. And no one is going to judge you. That's the nice thing about it. No one is going to judge you based on your costume or how you're behaving or that kind of stuff. Well, some people might, but nobody matters. That is true. That is true. And that doesn't give you license to behave in inappropriate ways. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's important to understand you don't have to make everything yourself. It is perfectly acceptable to buy parts of your costumes. In a lot of cases, most of my cosplay, I'll find something that's similar to what I want and then I'll alter it. But other ways, you can, like with most of the Spider-Man cosplay, you just buy the suit. I'm like, that is perfectly fine. There are lots of options. You can just make a costume from stuff you've got in your closet that's close. You can do an altered version of a character. There's all kinds of different spins you can do. Mm-hmm. It's also very important to think about practicality when you're doing your cosplay. So ask yourself questions like, can I get into this and out of it by myself? Or do I need help? That's a thing to know before you go. Because then you have to think about zippers and buttons and all that stuff. There's also like, there is a group that do these giant cosplays. So like there's a group out of uh, Tulsa that does these Iron Man cosplays that are the full mechanical metal suits. They even have little symbols attached to their feet that make the clanging noise. (laughs) And that is definitely a suit you cannot get in by yourself, and you will have to take it to a convention. You will have to have a handler to go around with you for safety issues. Uh, You also have to ask yourself, can I, while I'm wearing this, can I fit in a bathroom stall? And still use the facilities because you are definitely going to have to hydrate at these events or you will pass out. (laughs) You have to be able to undress enough to use the facilities. Yeah. You have to be able to get through doorways and things and... Think about what you're moving through. What's what's the area look like? Because if you are a safety hazard to the other people at the convention, they will not let you in in your cosplay. Um, the other, another big important one is heat exhaustion. 
Because when you go to these conventions, there are like 50,000 people. And so you stuff that many people in one area, it's going to get hot. And they're especially popular to have over the summer months, too. Yes. Um, at the first convention I went to, they, were, they had to call the ambulance so many times because there were so many people fainting. Uh, because most of these cosplays, they are big cosplays that have like 40 pounds of fabric on them. And there is very little air circulation. Because... Yeah. Or the ones like the, the Iron Man suits, they have to have fans and mm-hmm. things in there because it's all sealed up in mm-hmm. the air movement. Yeah, I remember the first one I went to, I saw this girl who had this amazing Harley Quinn cosplay, but it was a Victorian Harley Quinn. So she had the mm-hmm. huge bustle sur- skirts, lots of leather and everything. It got a bit warm. <laughs> um, and you definitely do not want to spend your convention time at a hospital. That is not going to be fun. Um, another thing to think about is the makeup you're wearing. Uh, because uh, in a lot of cases, you are wearing a lot of makeup for these cosplays, but you don't want the makeup all over your cosplays. No one else wants it all over theirs. The convention staff don't want it all over their stuff. The vendors don't want it on their stuff. Uh, so it's important to make sure that you're using the appropriate makeup or that it's appropriately sealed. There is a very nice brand of makeup that is water activated. So you put it on using water and it will not come off again until you get it wet. Is it body paint? Yeah. So it's not going to smear. It's not going to rub off on anything unless you get it wet. Um, and there are very few opportunities at these conventions for people to dump water on you. So yeah. <laughs> Even if it's just makeup you're wearing on your face, though, just the usual standard foundation, that sort of thing, you might want to think about sealing it because, again, it's very hot. You're probably going to be sweating a fair amount or you're going to be in it for hours. You want it to stay put. Mm-hmm. The other thing is always check your makeup to make sure you are not, because it is usually prosthetic makeup or uh, theater makeup or something, always make sure you're not going to have some kind of weird reaction to it. Um, there was, <laughs> I was doing a Little Red Riding Hood Werewolf Hunter cosplay this one time. And so for that cosplay, you end up putting claw marks on your face. So I was looking into having how to do the claw marks. And there's this one... Uh, scar makeup that you can do it really well with but since I have allergy issues I'm like well I should probably test this first which is a good thing I did because I ended up being allergic to it so and you don't want to get a surprise of having an allergic reaction to your makeup and then to be stuck in it for that long yeah make sure you bring along stuff though that so that you can remove stuff mm-hmm. or you can you can take out contacts you can remove makeup you can switch out whatever you need to stay comfortable yes um, it's also very important to wear comfortable shoes. Um, at this point, most of my cosplay costumes either go with boots or tennis shoes. Smart. Uh, because you definitely don't want shoes that will make your feet bleed because you'll be in them the whole day. And walking on concrete, most likely. Yes, and very few convention people will be happy about you walking around barefoot. Uh, yeah, most of them do not allow that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah, so even if you like need a specific pair of shoes to go with your cosplay in like a photo or a contest or something, you can bring those with and switch them out at that moment. But for the actual convention itself, wear comfortable shoes. <laughs> I'm like, people are not usually get it. So if they want a picture of you in your costume, they usually are perfectly fine with cutting your feet out of the picture and not putting those. <laughs> yeah, usually like knee to waist up is mm-hmm. full body is not necessary. Mm-hmm. Nobody's going to notice, or if they do, 
I mean, you're both sitting there standing on your feet for hours. They probably get it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And if you'd like more information on creating your first cosplay, uh, we do have the Cosplay 101 panel that you guys did for NanoCon mm-hmm. in the library archives. Uh, all you have to do is just go onto the website and find the Lunch and Learn Collections tab. So is there anything that you'd like to leave our listeners with? Um, any events that you'd like to plug? Coming, we do have our first Lunch and Learn for the season. And it's Sierra will actually be focusing on uh, the Wizards of Earthsea and that book series, which is very exciting. It should be really good. Um, we have so much stuff going on this year. Uh, if you want to look at everything that we have coming up, uh, just go to the library webpage and our calendar, and we have everything listed in there. Um, we're going to be doing stuff like maybe being uh, therapeutic uh, Play-Doh and a bunch of other crafts and stuff this year. We're doing yeah. lectures on King Tut. So yeah, Is that fun. a lunch and learn? Yeah. <laughs> and we also have uh, Band Books Week coming up uh, the last week of September. Mm-hmm. Or last-ish week. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you for joining me, Jessica and Allison. And that's all for this episode, folks. I'm your host, Sierra Whitfield, and I'm signing off.